You're listening to Season 8 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This is episode 8.6, Nothing Valued is Here, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, and I'm enough of a Gundam fan that I'm going to get through this whole episode without once complaining about how they depict gravity on the moon. And I'm Nina, new to Stardust memory and grateful to have finally found out what kinds of posts get me lots of attention on Twitter. Posts about Shima. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 724 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest supporters. Elizabeth S., Riley, Nodal Gravity, Shy Monkeys, Michael L., Josh F., and Shannon M. You keep us Genki. As an independent and ad-free podcast, MSB is entirely listener-supported. If you enjoy this podcast, support us today by recommending us to your friends, becoming a subscriber, making a one-time payment, buying us research materials and office supplies from our wish list, or reviewing us wherever you listen to podcasts. Links to all of the different ways to support us are on our website, gundampodcast.com support. This week, Stardust Memory Episode 6, Von Braun no Senshi. Its English title is The Warrior of Von Braun, and its original English title was Mind of the Moon. It was released on October 24th, 1991. Episode direction and storyboarding duties were handled by Watsunabe Shinichiro, and the script was written by Endo Akinori, his second and final script for the project. After this, it's going to be a decade before he returns to Gundam. The amazingly prolific voice actor Genda Tesho joins the cast this week, playing Lieutenant Kelly Lazner. Like many of the staff on 0083, Genda was fresh off of City Hunter, but more relevant for our purposes, he provided the voices of Desert Rommel and Gemon Bajak in Double Zeta, and Slayer Law in First Gundam. He's also the voice of Convoy or Optimus Prime in the Japanese versions of the Transformers shows and movies, Batman in the Japanese version of Batman the Animated Series and its spin-offs, Mace Windu in the Star Wars prequel movies, and Tigger in Disney's Winnie the Pooh. Now, the recap. Arriving in Von Braun City on the moon, most of the Albion's crew are excited to have a bit of shore leave, but Cole is unrelentingly glum as he stares at the wrecked Gundam. Nina's friends and co-workers, other women working as engineers and programmers at Anaheim, come to greet her at the port, but there won't be much time for socializing. Her boss relays that Captain Synapse wants the Unit 1 repaired and ready to go in just two days. She will be putting in overtime. The hours chime throughout the city, and the massive panels that provide daylight shut off in waves, the Von Braun version of a sunset. At night, the city is a riot of colorful neon, full of bars, concert halls, and other nightlife. Most of the Albion's crew go to the same lounge, eating and drinking in smaller groups. While his friends and co-workers cut loose, Cole continues to brood, drawing Moncha's drunken ire. If you're so upset about the Gundam getting damaged, you should just quit. Practically vibrating with emotion, Cole drops his glass and runs out of the lounge and down the narrow street. Stalking angrily down the sidewalk, he seems to be spoiling for a fight, and gets his wish when he shoves through a group of three men. The three gang up on him, beating him as they explain in conversational tones that he's not on Earth anymore, and that not everyone in Von Braun sides with the Federation. They leave him curled on the ground in an alley. Just before Cole loses consciousness, he sees a man standing over him. Quiet and dark, Anaheim's offices are closed, but Nina is working through the night. One of her friends stops on the way out and chides her for working too hard. I know you're a career woman, but you'll burn out if you never relax. She also hints at a failed romance in Nina's past, and the role Nina's work played in hurting the relationship. On the other side of the city from the port where the Albion docked, a woman in a tan skirt suit exits a nondescript ship, 
and walks down a catwalk to where Nina's boss from Anaheim is waiting with a town car. It's Shima, here to retrieve supplies for Operation Stardust. Anaheim is once again selling to both sides. Having slept through the morning, Cole wakes up in a shabby house in the middle of a junkyard. Outside, he finds the man who brought him, a tall, strong-looking fellow missing his left arm. The man's name is Kelly. They have lunch together, prepared by a young woman named Latora, and Kelly asks if Cole is a deserter, a question Cole is too surprised to answer. When Kelly returns to work, tinkering with some machinery in a massive hangar, Cole follows, and the older man again tries to find out what happened to Cole. But their conversation is interrupted when Cole, who has been looking around with interest, spots a mobile armor. He immediately rushes over, excitedly asking questions, only for Kelly to angrily fling him back. Stay away, it's just a hobby of mine, he growls. While some of the Albion crew are driving around looking for the wayward ensign, Cole behaves exactly as we've come to expect, ignoring Kelly's anger and clambering over the mobile armor to get a better look. Before Kelly can take another swing at him, Cole holds up a broken circuit board from the machine, one he believes he can fix. Taken aback, Kelly warns that he can't pay Cole for the work, but Cole doesn't mind. He just wants to be allowed to stay. Cole is working alone when Latora confronts him. Why are you helping your enemy? Cole has no idea what she's talking about, and she explains that Kelly fought for Zeon in the One Year War, which is also how he lost his arm. He has been depressed and angry ever since. She wants Kelly to finally move on from the past, but Cole's help is giving Kelly hope that he and the mobile armor will fly and fight again. After she storms out, Cole imagines what it would be like as a pilot to lose an arm and shudders in sympathy. On his way into the hangar, Cole stops short when he hears voices. Shima is there talking to Kelly, that is, Lieutenant Kelly Leisner. If he has the mobile armor ready by tomorrow, he can join Operation Stardust. They'd be happy to have the additional firepower. Afterwards, Cole confronts him, but Kelly refuses to be lectured by a coward, taunting Cole, telling him to either fight or run. This time, Cole chooses to fight. He punches Kelly over and over, but the bigger man knocks Cole to the ground with a single hit. Latura, returning from town, breaks them up and Cole leaves. He is walking along a highway when he spots Nina, out looking for him. It's nighttime, and they stand next to each other on an overlook, staring down at the city lights. She wants him to come back to the Albion with her, but there's something he still needs to do. I promise to come back, he yells, as he runs back toward the junkyard. He spends the night helping Kelly finish the mobile armor repairs, not out of pity, but because he can imagine how miserable it would be to not be a pilot anymore. The next morning, Cole arrives at Anaheim's plant in time for the Gundam Unit 1 post-repair trial and puts the mobile suit through its paces while his friends and comrades look on. I'm not sure how much I'm going to have to say about this episode, because on one level, a lot of it feels fairly straightforward. The theming, the characters, not a lot of surprises here. I don't know how much deeper I can read into anything on screen. But on the other hand, it's hard to say anything definitive about an episode that really feels like it ought to have a part one hanging off the end of the title. So much of this episode is about setting up things that may develop in one way or another in the future and will retroactively change the way we understand what's happening in this episode. That's interesting because the more I think about this episode, the more I think it contains in it a really crucial turning point in the story. <laughs> uh, surprise, surprise, for Cole. It's a whole episode mainly about Cole. Mm -hmm. Other bits of characterization and development slip in around the edges of that, but this is very much Cole's episode and brings what has been sort of an underlying conflict to a head and demands that Cole make a decision. I agree with you as far as that goes, but so much of Cole's development throughout this episode is a result of his relationship with Kelly. And the significance of Kelly to the plot is really only being suggested at this point. There is an ethos, there's a, a thesis that Kelly represents, but so much of this episode is about laying the groundwork for Kelly to do something in a future episode or episodes 
that will then cast a new light on everything that's happened in this episode. This might be one of those rare episodes where we disagree with each other, but we're kind of dancing around <laughs> the specifics. I'm yeah, going to dive in. let's drill down. Let's get specific. What's becoming increasingly clear to me through this episode is that while Monsha would probably give Cole a hard time regardless, Monsha is the kind of bully who gets even more angry and even more likely to pick on someone when they are quiet, when they don't fight back, when they run away. And Cole just keeps running from him. Running from him and running in general, avoiding his problems. His relationship with Kelly is essential because Kelly says, well, if you can't deal with the situation, then better quit now. <laughs> like, it's better that you know that now than in the midst of a war. If you can't hack it, if you can't deal with, oh, it's my fault that my mobile suit got damaged. Oh, people are having to do all this extra work because of me. Uh, maybe just quit then. And then again, later in their final confrontation before they work on the uh, mobile armor together. It's like, what, you don't like it? Hit me. Go ahead. Or just run. You can just keep running. But if you have a problem, fight me. And Kelly is, <laughs> when we see them fight, at first it feels kind of awkward because Kelly has only one arm and Cole has the use of both of his arms, so that doesn't seem super fair. But then we see that Kelly is a good head or head and a half taller than Cole and considerably larger. He takes multiple hits to the torso <laughs> from Cole without seeming very bothered by it and then knocks Cole down with one punch. But that is not the point. The point was not that Cole needed to win a fight. The point was that Cole needed to have enough pride in himself, enough conviction about what he was doing to stand and fight someone for once. Cole has been keeping one foot on each side of the line. He's been torn between the impulses to run and to fight. At the beginning of this episode, he makes the decision to run, if you can even call it a decision. And then at the end, he makes the decision now to fight. Uh, and Kelly is the one who directly challenges him and says, if you're going to run, run properly, resign, desert, leave. And if you're not going to do that, then you have to be willing to fight. I agree with you so far. And as you pointed out previously, every time a veteran can get presented to us in this show, it's one other example of a kind of masculinity, a kind of person that Cole could be. This sense of Cole being kind of unformed. And here's another person you could emulate. And Kelly directly presents the question, what would you do if you weren't a pilot? This bit kind of threw me, honestly, because Cole has the identical reaction to seeing this mobile armor that he did when the Gundam arrived in episode one. He charges in, he's climbing all over it, he's investigating all these bits and pieces. It doesn't matter that... Uh, nobody wants him there. <laughs> it doesn't matter that he gets shoved very hard away from the machine and told to keep away from it. He loves mobile suits and mobile armors, and he loves fixing things. And seeing how much he loves it, and the, I think, obvious visual parallels between him sitting on a floor working on this electronic system and Amuro way back in First Gundam sitting, you know, in his underwear in his room working <laughs> on computers... He so clearly loves it. The smile on his face and his confidence and obvious happiness doing this kind of work versus, I'm not sure we've ever seen him express that kind of happiness piloting. And yet he tells Kelly he can't imagine stopping. He can't imagine not being a pilot anymore. I don't really get it. <laughs> the story requires him to want to pilot. Yeah, but I, I don't think it makes a case very well <laughs> for why. <laughs> well, they say don't monetize your hobbies. So he's just, you know, he's practicing good self-care by not trying to turn this love of engineering that he has into an actual career. When he first leaves the bar and he's running through this sort of entertainment or uh, nightlife district, he has the energy of somebody who wants to be beaten up. It's one of the first times we see him really angry, I think. And he very much has the energy of someone who's picking fights because he's punishing himself. Oh, yeah. Because he wants some people to hurt him. Well, the, the broad motif of this episode is about rebuilding, specifically the reconstruction of the Gundam in tandem with the reconstruction of Cole as a person. His physical and emotional reconstruction mirrors the recovery and repair of the Unit 1 into the full Bernern version. We also see Nina working on the code, like 
both are being rebuilt internally and externally. So for Cole, at the beginning here, he needs to get beaten up the way the Gundam got destroyed in the prior episode. And there's even some similarity to it in the way he's just like helpless, unable to move, stumbling around as they beat him up. It is for him atonement to subject himself to the same violence that was done to his machine. And very importantly, the episode raises the specter of Gato uh, in terms of what direction Cole chooses to move in. Because Gato and Kelly are theoretically both on the same side, both fought for Zeon. They're veterans of the one-year war on that side. and they, they were both lieutenants. They intend to continue fighting on that side. But Kelly's outlook is a much better fit for Cole than Gato's is. Because despite everything that has happened, Cole is still incredibly oblivious. It doesn't occur to him that his failure to go back to base means he's a deserter. He is confused by Latura referring to former Zeons as his enemy. It's almost like he doesn't think he has enemies. Enemy? What enemy? We're not fighting anybody. <laughs> Kelly's love of these machines and love of being a pilot and having that be part of his identity that he can't simply stop, that is something that Cole understands. See, I think Kelly and Gato have a lot in common. The principal difference is that Gato is lying to himself. You don't think Gato is just actually super naive? Oh, I'm sure that's a big part of why he's able to lie to himself like this. <laughs> Kelly understands that he's doing this for him. This is about his pride. Gato instead subsumes that feeling, that, that self-regard, that really very selfish desire to be a pilot into these high-flying ideals of Xeon and like glory and a sort of objective idea of how a, a man, a fighter, a warrior should behave. Gato is consumed by vanity, whereas for Kelly it's pride. And those two words are pretty similar, but in this case have a crucial difference. One of Kelly's lines made me think of last week's research about holdouts, because he tells Cole, I will not live the rest of my life as a loser. If he stops fighting, he accepts that they lost, that he wasted so much of his time and energy and life and gave up his arm for a failure. And he won't do it. He refuses to do that. Even if their chances are not great at this point, fighting back again, even if he will probably die, he would rather do that than live his life thinking of himself as a loser. There's a really beautiful moment when with no words whatsoever, just with the animation and how they cut this scene together, they demonstrate Cole really thinking about and feeling empathy for Kelly. Latura has just busted in and yelled at him for getting Kelly's hopes up about the mobile armor and explained that he was a veteran of the one-year war, he lost his arm, I want him to give up on this machine because I think if he doesn't, he will die, and also that fighting on like this makes him miserable. She's scared for him. But I guess none of this had occurred to Cole. And he imagines not actually fighting in space, but he pictures all the debris, everything that is left after the one-year war, all the bits of colony and ship and mobile suit floating around in space that he has seen, and then cut to him holding his arm. Mm-hmm. It's a really evocative depiction of empathy, of imagining what someone else must feel. And in an episode that is so preoccupied with repair, reconstruction, building things back stronger than they were before, it is important here that they acknowledge that some things are just broken. Some things don't get fixed. And by the end of the episode, Ko seems to have developed a kind of working relationship to what it is he does and why. Maybe the Fed hasn't given him some uh, very emotional reason to do it, but he is coming to terms with why he does this and that it revolves around this love of machines that he has. And that he has the self-awareness by the end of this episode to say, I need to figure out what's going on with me. <laughs> I need to figure out why I got so upset about the Gundam being damaged or like I need to figure out what it is in me that's causing this like extra struggle. And that is a counterpoint to much earlier in the episode when he first starts working on the mobile armor and he says, here's the broken bit. 
He's saying, I need to look inside myself and find the broken parts. I need to diagnose what is wrong with the coal machine. And that is a, a very grown-up realization. It is. This is kind of a sidebar, but both him and Kelly and Nina, actually, their, their passion for these machines that is entirely separate from how those machines are used and what they're for reminds me a lot of the movie The Wind Rises, mm -hmm. uh, which was a Miyazaki film. Uh, everybody thought it was going to be his last one, <laughs> and then he keeps coming out of retirement. But it's about a Japanese aviation engineer, a plane designer, who just loved planes, loved aeronautics, and wound up designing and building a bunch of the fighter planes that Japan used in World War II, but always had this sort of relationship to the designing and building of the planes that was divorced from that. He loved them as a beautiful piece of technology and didn't really want to engage with what they were for. Kelly's arm gave me strong flashbacks to 0080, actually, and the scenes with Professor Lumumba and his work on bionics, specifically on prosthetic arms based on the same technology that was going into the Gundam. Mm -hmm. And in that series, I think they were directly engaging with the contradictions between the capacity of technology to help people and the capacity of technology to be used for violence. Here, I'm not sure how intentionally they're engaging with that idea, because I think the real problem with this episode is all around that mobile armor, which for Cole, helping Kelly represents this act of like gratitude and healing and the restoration of Kelly's pride. Uh, and a, a desire to kind of engage with an enemy you respect on equal terms. But they're not fixing a tractor. No. They're fixing a mobile armor. Yep. Cole is willingly and knowingly helping his enemy to build a machine that will be used to kill his friends and allies. If it were something else, the episode would be so much simpler. Well... <laughs> it might almost be too simple. It might almost become trite at that point. But part of the reason I think we need to put that part one at the end of the episode title is because something's gonna happen with this mobile armor tomorrow. And what that something is, is going to completely recontextualize the relationship between Cole and Kelly and his efforts to repair this thing. Not for nothing, I still don't think Cole understands that there is an enemy he's fighting. Somehow, even after Kimberide base and he says, oh, is that the enemy? And that even after Shima taking pot shots at the Gundam, mm -hmm. shooting chunks out of it, like he's in a shooting gallery. In this episode, he stands outside the garage and overhears them and then goes in there and is like, you're with the Delaz fleet. Why? How? How dare you not tell me? And somehow still doesn't understand the concept of an enemy force. <laughs> that he is going to have to fight if he's still doing this. Yeah, Cole doesn't get it. Does the show get it? I think reading this episode, you can quite reasonably say 0083 is saying that the feelings of soldiers are more important than the consequences of their actions. That for Cole, restoring the mobile armor and restoring Kelly as a pilot is more important than what Kelly might actually do with that mobile armor as a pilot. That Kelly's pride is more important than his life and the lives of anyone else that he might kill. This past weekend, we finally watched Top Gun, which neither of us had seen before, but which we understood was very influential to this series. And one of the things that felt very strange to me about Top Gun that I think is reflected in this series to some degree is how vague the sense of the enemy is. They're never named. <laughs> a type of plane is named. And there's no real effort made within the context of the story to justify like, oh, this is why we're fighting these people. And part of that is because of when the movie came out and maybe they just count on the audience assuming that, oh, this is the Cold War, so of course it's Russia or a Russian-aligned state. It's some group of people who the audience could shake their fists at and go, the Reds! But on another level, the vagueness makes it feel as though within the context of Top Gun, who we're fighting and why is irrelevant. Well, they have that scene in the opening of Top Gun where they say, 
it's not our job to decide policy. Right. Exactly. We are the instruments of enacting policy, but it's not our job to make those decisions. Apparently, it's not even uh, something they think about or should think about. Whatever things are like in real life, in real militaries, making that the philosophy of your movie or your TV show is a choice that you make as a writer. And in some ways, Cole feels like he fits within that uh, kind of story, that kind of story where the fighting is the thing. Technology and skill versus different technology and different skill. You know, two warriors on a battlefield without all of the uncomfortable emotional context. <laughs> yeah, it's very chivalric. It's old fashioned. It's like something out of Greek epic. The two warriors meeting on the battlefield and treating each other honorably. And reflects a kind of... Um, a desire for something simpler, a desire for action and even fighting and even death to engage with those things on these very like limited personal terms so that you don't have to think about politics or philosophy or human rights or any of the, <laughs> the bigger, extremely complicated uh, aspects of contemporary warfare. Collateral damage, yeah. for instance. Gundam, in general, refuses to let war become isolated and clean in that way. And even within this episode, there are two really important incidents that remind us that all of this is much bigger than just the feelings of these two men. The first one is Latura, who directly challenges Cole. Why are you helping your enemy? Why are you doing this? You dumb idiot. Second point, Shima, when she shows up to meet with the Anaheim director, and she's like, if you double-cross us, I'll drop a colony on the moon. So, like, very clearly, there is a direct threat to the whole city, all the civilians. The conflict is not just about duels between Gundams and Gelgoogs. And that may well be the source of sort of further development in Cole as the story moves on. Because we're on episode six. It's 14 episodes total? 13. 13. So we're only halfway through. Lots more stuff is going to happen. After having decided to stay out of this sense of personal pride and that he can't imagine stopping being a pilot, some other things may happen that lead him to some other conclusion or, or some other reason to continue fighting. The kind of story I was describing earlier that is sort of devoid of all of those external details and boils everything down to one-on-one -on -one conflict is more like a fairy tale. Gundam tends not to do fairy tale, and so that conflict between the way in which he's kind of come to terms with sticking with it as a pilot and the fact that he's done so by ignoring all of these broader issues and even personal stuff, like the danger that he's putting his own friends in, uh, that conflict is probably going to drive further character development on his part. Right. Like, hypothetically, if... Kelly goes out there in this mobile armor and kills Keith in the next episode. Not saying that's going to happen, hypothetically. How would Ko react to that? You helped fix the machine that killed your best friend. Right. And whatever Kelly does, Ko has helped to fix a machine that does killing. That's its purpose. That's the one thing it does. A mobile armor is even less multipurpose than a mobile suit. Yeah, Kelly really made me think about well, this whole episode made me think of some of the uh, sociopolitical issues. Once again, Anaheim is playing both sides against the middle. That's basically what they do. Nobody puts a stop to them. I assume everybody kind of knows, at least everybody important. <laughs> like, Nina would probably be horrified, but she ought <laughs> to know better. The Federation, now that they don't feel like Earth is being threatened, has decided to take a wait-and-see approach which is basically their approach to every problem. Yeah, they were all panicking when they thought they might get killed, but now that it's just going to be some people up in space, who cares? That there are Zeons and Zeon sympathizers throughout the Earth sphere, including in Von Braun City. That there is a, a feeling of antagonism toward Earth still, and people from Earth. Delaz's speech is playing on those TVs at the front of the electronics store, and there's a crowd watching. There is, but I paid special attention to that crowd. And overall, I would say there's no sense of, like, excitement. No one is cheering. No one is chanting the old war cries. 
everyone looks curious and a little worried, interested in how all of this is going to affect them, but not involved. Yet, but sort of raises the issue when you've had a war, how do you reintegrate your society? That's an aspect I wish the series would go into. I would like to see some former Zeons, especially former Zeon soldiers, who actually gave up the fight. Some actual retirees or some people who joined the federal forces. It would make total sense for there to be, you know, a couple of people on the Albion who used to serve in the Zeon forces. Yeah, it would. And obviously that's a very difficult prospect when people have been fighting each other in that way, when so many people have died. Tempers are high. It can take a long time for people to be able to be on decent terms with each other or live alongside each other again. But also, if you don't, then you wind up in situations like Kelly's. If he felt more a part of Von Braun's society, if he felt more valued, would he still be so hung up on being a pilot? Mm -hmm. Was there ever a chance to reintegrate Kelly into society, or was he already too far gone? Did he choose that life working in the junkyard because he felt like he belonged there? Did he choose it because it was the best place to hide his old mobile armor? And I do not have the answer to those questions, but they are some of the more interesting ones raised by Kelly and Latura and the gang that beat up Cole and some of these other moments in the episode. We've already covered most of what I have to say about Kelly and Cole, but I do have to note before we move on what an odd choice it was to play the song Magic while they're repairing the mobile armor together. Yeah, over that montage. So far in the show, they've only got like three songs and two of them are the same song and they keep using them alternately at crucial moments. In this episode, they use magic for the repair scene and then when Cole is piloting the full burn urn for the first time, they switch over to, um, I think it's Back to Paradise. But magic is a love song, pretty explicitly. It suggests some things that don't seem to have been where the episode was going more generally. Maybe Cole's true love is mobile suits. I mean, I can't argue with that. <laughs> they also brought back the kind of spooky, discordant music that I noticed when they are headed out to the second of Gato's rendezvous points, where he's going to get picked up by the submarine, or the, the boat deployed by the submarine. And then here, that same music gets played in sort of big establishing shots of the junkyard that slowly come in closer and closer to the house until it's Cole in the house working on these electronics repairs. So maybe they use that as a kind of, oh, we're about to confront the enemy. <laughs> but I always notice it. It's very... Uh, it's not music that is subtle. It doesn't just sort of like slide into the background. When Kelly first shows up, when Ko has been beaten down and they've torn his pilot's pin off of his uniform, pin which, by the way, looks almost identical to the ones in Top Gun, I'm sure that's not a coincidence. But you would be forgiven for seeing Kelly in Ko's fading vision and thinking, is that Quattro Bagina? Oh, I got more of a Cucuruz Doan's vibe, because I think he's a lot bigger than Quattro. Quattro was a big dude. Especially when they drew him that way, which wasn't all the time, but sometimes. I think Kelly has more of the, like, slightly older, deeply lined face. I mean, he does, yeah. But the art style in this show is different. I'm just saying. While we're talking about music and animation and the like, there were a lot of things about the design of this episode that I really liked. That when they come into the spaceport, you can hear the announcements for other voyages. It's not all military there's a flight to Hong Kong leaving soon. There's a big welcome to Von Braun painted on the ceiling when you arrive. Other little things like on the Albion's approach, they blur the foreground. They blur the bits of the Albion that you can see. And the part that's in focus is the doors of the port opening. I really liked when the city was shutting down for the night. That was so cool that they uh, they play a chime for whatever a clock this usually happens. And then they very gradually turn off the lights. <laughs> the lights, which are like in a honeycomb pattern on the ceiling. 
even the design of the city, which feels fairly neutrally city-like in some shots, but then in others, the whole place basically feels like an overgrown mall. And then once things go dark, you get full like neon dream <laughs> cyberpunk future. It's a very cool city design. They have guidebooks out when they're looking for Cole, and they talk about uh, looking for him on the different levels of the colony. And I, I think this must be a very old idea in science fiction, the idea of the sort of layered city with the lowest layers being for, like, trash and manufacturing. Well, we always talk about, like, you know, high society and low brow. We have the language of metaphor where things are elevated or not. And this then makes that literal in the design of your city. And trash is kind of a, a persistent visual metaphor <laughs> in this episode. Kelly is in the junkyard. Cole winds up there. Cole has a moment when he's charging through this sort of entertainment arcade street where he sees a trash can that says pitch in on it. <laughs> which enrages him. That's like the one thing he feels like he's not doing, right? He feels like he's not pitching in. He feels like he is, in fact, anti-pitching in. And in a rage, he knocks over the garbage can. Presumably, the mobile armor was found by Kelly in amongst all this other trash. <laughs> and everything he's using to repair it, or most of what he's using to repair it, is not purchased new, but is salvage. It is perhaps that all of this trash, all of this junk has been discarded by society in the same way that Kelly and these other veterans feel discarded. Now, we were just talking about how we don't actually know if Kelly could have been salvaged. The visual metaphor suggests that perhaps he could have been. And going into the episode, we know that Cole feels like garbage. He feels like a trash person. I don't think the thugs who beat him up ever say, time to take out the trash, but they could have. There is some English language uh, bus graffiti that I'm not going to repeat, <laughs> but <laughs> that was an interesting inclusion. Because of the sheer amount of signage in this episode, I'm sure there are tons of little in-jokes and references that I missed, but two that stood out shiny and bright <laughs> for me. Uh, Sonic Youth is on the billboard for one of these bars. Uh, Sonic Youth is a band that emerged in the early 80s somebody clearly a fan <laughs> and then there's also like a knockoff johnny rockets behind cole at one point for those of you who aren't familiar johnny rockets is a kind of like throwback pseudo 50s american diner chain so it's you know burgers and milkshakes and the wait staff wear old-timey uniforms and there are jukeboxes it's a bit like a, a theme park of americana <laughs> And I don't know if there were any Johnny Rockets in Japan, but it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, I'd like to finish just by talking about how incredible this series has been with its characterizations of even pretty minor characters, giving us a sense of who these people are, even in very brief scenes, really fleshes things out. And if you're right in anticipating that Cole is going to have to deal with the consequences of his actions, Having that sense of these people is going to be that much more important. But the bar scene when they are all on leave and almost the whole crew of the Albion, or at least all the officers, seem to wind up at the same bar. With the operators, basically the whole bridge crew has divided into two groups, one of which is sitting at a table drinking together, although one of the operators is like, doing calculations well, right, on that, his little pocket calculator. But he's not drunk at all and apparently can't stop thinking about work and is doing these Minovsky particle calculations. And then Simon, or maybe Simone, I'm not sure what her name is supposed to be, but she's very drunk and starts aggressively flirting with him. <laughs> uh, the sort of quiet, serious, big blonde guy... Captain Passerov. ...can apparently just put it away. Drinks in a way that people are crowding around <laughs> to stare <laughs> at him drinking. It's so impressive. Everybody's pink-faced and loud to various degrees. Moncha is talking to two women, of course talking himself up in a very exaggerated manner. Burning has a beautiful young woman under one arm, walks in, sees everybody, and is like, oh no. <laughs> no, thank you. I will go to a different bar. <laughs> Uh, the fact that later, while they're looking for Cole, 
burning, just this very exaggerated, like, head turning to follow a beautiful woman walking by gesture. Someone else hinted that burning is a bit of a, a player, a bit of a horn dog. The poor doomed Lieutenant Callant all those episodes ago. And it was difficult for me to believe. Like, I almost thought it was a mistranslation. I was like, that guy, really? But they, <laughs> they've they proved their point. <laughs> burning can keep it in his private life, which is clearly a challenge for everybody else to draw the line between their professional lives and their private lives. And for a guy like Moncha, Moncha is completely unprofessional. But then Cole and especially Nina do the opposite. They try to, like, cut all the private bits out and are just totally focused on work to the point where everyone around them is like, you need to relax and unwind or you are going to have a heart attack before you're 40. I also really appreciated this little glimpse into what Nina's life would have been like when she wasn't aboard the Albion. She has friends and co-workers. I discussed this a little bit with a couple of our other podcast listeners, but the fact that they're all in matching outfits was actually a thing at a lot of Japanese companies, even for what we think of as like white collar or office jobs to have a uniform that people wear uh, and still crops up in some workplaces even today. So it wouldn't be unusual to have this whole uh, group of women wearing the same outfit, wearing a uniform at work, even though they're clearly like programmers and engineers. And I don't know if it's meant to be a reference, but the fact that this team is entirely composed of women made me think about early computers, back when computer was a reference to women doing calculations before we had electronic computers to do them. Oh, their office has a poster of the RX-78-2 in it. That's a real world poster. Huh? They are also Gundam obsessed. But her friend sort of vaguely mentioning some past romance that didn't work out. Nina's dark history. And it's implied that that is because Nina is such a career woman and so focused on her job. And her friend slash coworker is assuring her, oh, I'm certain that you could find a balance. Just because you're serious about your work doesn't mean you can't ever have a romantic relationship. Clearly, this has been a struggle for Nina in the past. Once burned, twice shy, she's decided at some point not to pursue romantic relationships because of this past thing. And then hilariously, her friend refers to Mr. Gundam as, oh, is Mr. Gundam enough for you? And she means the mobile suit, but we could also call Cole Mr. Gundam. <laughs> no, no, Mr. Gundam is my grandpa. Just call me GP01. <laughs> I wish they would actually say the name of the mobile suit in one of these episodes so that I could say it here. I'm actually not sure if they ever say it at any point in the series. You were talking about the characterization, and one thing that may slip past a lot of people, I don't know if the dub even tries to reflect this, the subtitles only get it some of the time, but I think Moncha habitually misspeaks. <laughs> He's drunk a lot of the time. Oh yeah, but in this episode, when they're leaving and uh, someone's like, oh, did Nina turn you down again? He's like, she had work. She had to go to work. That's why she couldn't go on a date with me. He doesn't say, shigoto, work. He says, Shimoto. And in a prior episode, when he's cursing Mora, he's trying to use a curse word to insult her, um, but he misspeaks. He mispronounces it. Mora corrects him. And the translator for this was very, very clever because in Japanese, the two words are very similar, uh, but one of them is an insulting term for a woman. And one of them is a way of saying like a lot of something many of something, and they manage in English to find two words that have those same meanings and are also very similar sounding. So props to the translator on that one. In this episode, uh, they don't appear to have even attempted to capture the, the misspeaking on Moncha's part here. At first I thought it might be like a dialect thing, but I can't find any evidence of any dialect where you would say for work. But take that with a substantial grain of salt. I'm not an expert on Japanese dialects. Final point in favor of my argument that this is major turning point episode rather than just episode on the way to something more important. The ending. The fact that we go from a music over montage into him at the trial with this array of people standing perfectly still watching him and then him launching the Gundam 
towards Earth, it all feels very like end of a pilot episode kind of vibes that you sometimes get at a series midpoint or, oh, yeah. or like significant point in the narrative later on as well. Cole has received the mid-season upgrade. Yes. Which coincides with the reconstruction of his own self, the new mobile suit, the new co, now united. And up until this point, there's been a real uncertainty about how Cole and the Gundam relate to each other. Is the Gundam Nina? Is the Gundam Nina's child? Is the Gundam Cole? Now, Nina has rebuilt the destroyed Gundam specifically for Cole. There is no more debate about will he be the pilot or won't he be. Everybody knows this is Cole's machine. Because ultimately, the decision wasn't anyone's but Cole's. And now, Tom's research on cause balancer issues. This week, I'm going to talk about a topic that was suggested by listener Josh. A little bit of the Gundam universe lore that has been in the background since the early days of the franchise, but never really came out into the light until last week's episode. Ambac. If you've been hanging around Gundam fandom for a minute, you have probably seen this acronym before. It stands for a fictitious technology which is properly called Active Mass Balance Auto Control. The basic idea is that a mobile suit can change its attitude, its posture and direction, without expending propellant by swinging its limbs and making use of the law of conservation of momentum. Similar to the way a figure skater might change the position of their leg in order to change the speed of a spin. In space, then, if a mobile suit uses internal motors to swing its arms and legs like this, conservation of momentum requires its body to then turn like so. There's no need for verniers, those smaller maneuvering thrusters that augment a main propulsion system. Of course, in the real world, astronauts do this too, although due to NASA budget cuts, they're forced to use their own human bodies instead of cool giant robot suits. Incidentally, the full Bernern version of the Unit 1 Gundam, which debuted in this episode, by rights ought to be full Vernian, referring to its many additional verniers. I assume that the original Bernern romanization was just a mistake, but it's one that's stuck around ever since, and I think we can assume that it's just going to be with us forever. It is very funny to me, personally, that this show includes a character named Burning, the opening track includes the line, I've got a burning heart, and the main character pilots a mobile suit with full burn in its name, and yet none of these three things are in any way connected to each other but I digress. Minimizing the amount of propellant necessary for maneuvering in space isn't just a question of being stingy. Every gram of fuel loaded onto a mobile suit means less capacity to carry armor or ammunition, and every additional gram increases the suit's mass, making it less maneuverable and thus requiring even more propellant in order to be able to move. On the other hand, the fusion reactor powering the mobile suit produces a relatively large amount of electricity. Powering the electric motors that drive the limbs and make AMBAC possible is trivial by comparison. Though never named explicitly by its acronym, AMBAC looms large over Episode 5. Nina tells Cole they won't be able to use the Unit 1 until it's been modified for space with extra verniers. Cole counters that the Gundam could be usable as is, assuming they can adjust the balancer for space use. He spends the rest of the episode doing and redoing calculations for just that purpose, and when he eventually does sortie, he starts by inserting a disc, which, presumably, was meant to correct the problems with the balancer. Then, when he's flailing about like a baby bird making its first halting flight out of the nest, one of Shima's wingmen speculates that the machine's balancer must be messed up. That balancer must be the computer system that translates pilot input like turn this way into AMBAC movements, swing the arms and legs thusly. And I think this is the most directly that AMBAC has ever been referenced in the show. But the concept was already a decade old by the time 0083 came out. In fact, it was one of the earliest examples of the Gundam fandom 
making things up in order to explain away perceived problems in the scientific logic of the show itself. Why do we have humanoid battlesuits instead of fighters, or featureless battle spheres capable of moving and firing in any direction? Well, it's because limbs let you use AMBAC and conserve fuel. Actually though, some insects fly this way. Dragonflies and moths, for instance, tuck their forelegs tight against their bodies in order to reduce drag, making them more like a fighter plane. But flying beetles stretch their legs out in every direction when they fly. Back in 2017, researchers in Singapore were curious to see if the beetles used those outstretched limbs to aid in their maneuvering. The team set up force-sensitive joysticks and used some visual trickery to make the beetles think that they were changing directions while flying. The insects reacted by swinging their legs like counterweights against the direction of the fictitious turn. Then the researchers let the beetles fly around, but they used mild electric pulses to stimulate the beetle's leg muscles. The result? Rapid changes in heading, all functioning exactly like we might expect a mobile suit to. The concept has also been explored by real space engineers, including Iwata Toshiaki, senior researcher at Japan's National Institute of Advanced Industrial Science and Technology, and an expert on satellite design. In the 1990s, Iwata worked on space robots, including those designed for deep space construction. One paper, Experiments on Space Robot Arm Path Planning Using the Sensors Database, opens by noting that a free-flying space robot's orientation could be controlled solely by the movement of its arms. In 2004, Iwata wrote another article and actually name-dropped AMBAC in the title. Quote, AMBAC, Active Mass Balance Auto Control System, Teashi no Undo o Ryoshita Hoko Segyokino, or AMBAC, an orientation control function by movement of the limbs. AMBAC was first explored in the seminal Gundam data book Gundam Century, originally published in 1981. I've talked about Gundam Century before and in more detail back during Season 5, Episode 8, because it was also the first source book to establish Sydney, Australia as the epicenter of the Operation British Colony Drop. The book itself is what you might call quasi-official, and it was assembled under the auspices of the sci-fi design group Studio Nue, and made by a team that included mecha designer Okawara Kunio and first Gundam writers Hoshiyama Hiroyuki and Matsuzaki Kanichi. But it also included some fans who hadn't worked on Gundam, at least not yet. Nagase Tadashi, for example, would go on to work on the background setting for Zeta and Double Zeta. AMBAC itself was the invention of Morita Shigeru, who would later work on setting design for Turn A Gundam and Gundam Seed. But the more relevant connection is probably Kawamori Shoji, then fresh out of university and designing toys for Takara's Diaclone line, predecessor to Hasbro's Transformers. Just a year after the release of Gundam Century, Kawamori rocketed to stardom as the designer of the VF-1 Valkyrie in Super Dimension Fortress Macross. A decade later, Kawamori took charge of what we would normally call mecha design for Stardust Memory, but his actual credit is for mechanical styling. In a 2022 interview, he explained that design meant creating the machine in its entirety, from the ground up, taking into account its internal mechanisms and structures. But in the case of Gundam, the basics of mobile suit design were already well established. Reworking the exteriors, changing the colors, adjusting the proportions, all of that is just aesthetics. And what's more, he had orders from on high to make the Unit 1 resemble the original Gundam and all its late 70s super robot-inspired glory. So as a sign of respect to first Gundam and its creators, he requested this unusual mechanical styling credit. But this deference to the original work put him in a bit of a bind. You see, there was a strong feeling among the team that 0083 ought to pursue realism. But the idea of a 19-meter humanoid robot is not the least bit realistic. So it's only natural that AMBAC, invented once upon a time to create some kind of a rational basis for mobile suits, would come to the forefront now, in the most self-consciously realistic Gundam to date. And that the team, well aware that they were standing on the shoulders of giants, would look for guidance in Gundam Century, a landmark work from the first golden age of Gundam fandom. But as Nina herself, the podcaster, not the engineer, 
pointed out way back in season one, if four limbs are good for maneuvering, then why not more limbs? Why aren't we seeing agile robotic squid dominating space combat? Well, we haven't gotten to that level, but successive Gundam projects would introduce extra appendages explicitly to help with maneuvering, most notably the nigh-ubiquitous wing binders of the Zeta era. But the real question, at least as far as realism is concerned, is whether AMBAC would be sufficient to justify humanoid battlesuits. Would a mobile suit with arms and legs actually be better at space combat than a fighter? It's probably impossible to answer that question. It raises too many subsidiary issues. With what weapons are they fighting? At what ranges against what targets? How much do they cost? How easy are they to learn to pilot? And so on. But the example of the beetle and the dragonfly from earlier, I think, makes for a useful analogy. The animal kingdom has room for insects that fly more like fighters and insects that fly more like mobile suits. Tanks, infantry fighting vehicles, self-propelled guns, and pickup trucks with rocket launchers bolted on the back all share space on the modern battlefield. Now, space dogfighting in visual range is itself pretty unrealistic, at least without Minovsky particles or something like them. But in the event that it does someday happen, I actually think there might be a role for something like AMBAC-driven mobile weapons. Just don't be disappointed if they look more like squid than people. How could anybody be disappointed by squid? Well, here's a sentence I didn't think I would ever say. Deadly robot space squid are the future. Next time on episode 8.7, the danger is unleashed only if you substantially disturb this place. We research and discuss Gundam 0083 Stardust Memory, episode 7, and Cole's confidence is directly proportional to his proximity to the Gundam. G-Flutter, Gang Flag, and other techno-babble. Curse your sudden but inevitable betrayal! Hey, it's the park from Zeta! Keith is his wingman! Get it? Get it? Do you get it? Maybe Cole should be looking for a love affair. I wanted to talk to you about the noise in my heart. Oh, it's that weapon from First Gundam. The legs are just for show. And I just want to wrap Keith in bubble wrap and keep him safe forever. The danger is still present in your time as it was in ours. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music for this season is 80s synth rock guitar improvisation by Zombiefish. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, or by email to hosts at GundamPodcast.com. And thank you for listening. The Wrong Gundam Opinion this week was submitted by a listener who would like to remain anonymous, so we'll just call him B. Moncha. No, wait, that's too obvious. Uh, Bernard M. Uh, Bernard M. writes in to say, All the women on the Albion are... Well, Bernard, I don't think I agree, but I have to respect your audacious mustache. Probably edit out that laugh. That was weird. Warms up the lungs. Nina, England isn't a real place. They want you to believe that there's a whole country full of places with names like 
Beefington on Westhamshire. <laughs> Well, then, fine. That's fine for them. I hope they feel good afterwards. Probably one of them would feel dead. God, who keeps honking? Might put an insert here, depending on what we find out in the, uh, in the ensuing days. I wonder if I wonder if I can even say the Japanese, right? I mean, oh, it's, it's also. It's all. I mean, it's also a slur, right? Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs>